Dr. Gita Vaid is a board-certified psychiatrist and psychoanalyst practicing in New York. She completed her residency training at NYU Medical Center and psychoanalytic training at the Institute for Psychoanalytic Education affiliated with NYU. She has a rich research and biological background, completing a fellowship in clinical psychopharmacology and neurophysiology at New York Medical College and a research fellowship at NYU Medical Center. She's currently on faculty and teaches at both IPE and NYU Department of Psychiatry. Her current focus and interest is in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. She's a MAPS training therapist and part of the New York site Phase 3 MDMA Psychotherapy Study for PTSD. And today, we're going to go deep on ketamine therapy. Gita, welcome. Thank you for having me. It is so great to have you here. So... I am super excited because I am fascinated by what you do, ketamine therapy. So let, let's start with what is ketamine and give us a little history, what, what was traditionally used for and what you do exactly. Um, I'm a psychiatrist in private practice. I'm a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst. So that's my background and my orientation. And in the last several years, I would say six, seven years, I've gotten very involved with psychedelics in different capacities, including the MAP study with MDMA psychotherapy for trauma. And that's moved into ketamine work and ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, which is a large part of what I do in my practice every day, as well as teach. And it's a very interesting medicine. So what was ketamine traditionally used for? It's been used in the past as an anesthesia and an anesthetic agent. It's a very good anesthetic agent. So it's been used for many, many years, very safely in adults, and interestingly enough, with children as well. It's used a lot with children because they don't have an aversion to the psychedelic experience. Um, So it was used at some point less often for adults because they would have strange experiences of being in different places and different visions, and it disturbed them, and it was considered an unfortunate side effect. And children really didn't have a problem with them. So children use it a lot. And it's also been used because it's so safe and it doesn't have cardiac effects and it doesn't have respiratory effects. It's been used a lot and it's very cheap. It's been a lot used in wars where you can use the body system of just shooting up your friend if they've had an injury because it doesn't need intensive monitoring, which I think is really important because it really speaks to the safety um, of the medicine. It's also used a lot for pain. It's very, very good for pain. It's been used in different ways to treat pain syndromes. So it has a lot of uses in medicine in the past. And somewhere along the line, it was found to be a really important, uh, very quick-acting antidepressant. People noticed that when administered, they would feel way less depressed. And that was noted. And then the idea of really studying it, also because of its receptor activity, it works on NMDA and a glutamate system as an antagonist. And there's been a lot of interest in exploring alternative antidepressants that that work on different mechanisms. So far, most of the historical antidepressants have really looked at at medicines that focus on serotonin and um, norepinephrine. And so it's a really different way of working. And there are different types of ketamine, correct? There are, yes. Can you go through the like go through the different kinds and what your particular the kind you're particularly excited about? 
Well, you know, ketamine is really ketamine. There's different isomers, and S-ketamine has become, you know, FDA-approved for treatment-resistant depression. And, you know, really, it's not clear that one is tremendously more effective than the other. In fact, some of the studies have shown just the mixture of the um, isomers is more effective. And probably that has to do with dosing. I'm not sure that one is actually more effective than the other. But I think it's important because... The issue was studying it. When a medicine is really um, generically available, it's hard to get studies done because a lot of the studies are driven by um, pharmaceutical companies. Sure. And so it's been helpful that the studies have been done. And we're looking to, I think there is an interest in trying to find improved molecules and advantages. And esketamine and is used a lot now for treatment-resistant depression and is covered by insurance. And that's another part. It's really huge. It's hugely important. Um, generally speaking, I work with that less. I work more with regular ketamine, which is the mixture, just because it's very affordable and cheap. And um, and even if you have to pay out of pocket because it's not covered by insurance, it's still very affordable. So what does that look like in your practice where you know, someone comes in and you're like, just walk me through the process of someone walking in depressed and then that process with regards to talk therapy, ketamine, like just give us a picture of what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's not tremendously different than the way I work with patients generally, although it has totally informed and evolved with working in this way, because everything shifts when you enter into work with psychedelics. I would say, generally speaking, when I have a new consultation with someone, I like to meet with them so we can get to know each other and I can try and understand who they are, what their story is, why they came to see me, what's the presenting issues currently, and also just have a sense of who that person is generally, how their how their understanding of their history has been to inform where they are right now. So it's very much like a general, I wouldn't say psychiatric interview, probably more of a psychoanalytic in- interview, because I like to understand what's happening currently in the person's life, where they are right now, what the balance of symptoms they're struggling with that led them to come there. Unfortunately, and perhaps fortunately, I think it's conventional really, people typically show up in a psychiatrist's office with a bunch of presenting symptoms. That's not always the case, but it can be the case. So it might be someone's very focused on depressive symptoms or anxiety or insomnia. Um, actually, more and more, that's not the case why people come and see me. But um, because I'm a psychoanalyst, perhaps it might be relationship difficulties or patterns they've noticed in their life or just a general dysthymia or lack of satisfaction even after achievement. So there could be many different presenting symptoms, but I try and get a sense of who they are beyond just those experiences. If they have um, what their story is, what their childhood was like, what informed who they are, and um, also to try and make an assessment of how much, how they understand themselves, or do they understand themselves. It's very important, I feel, for people to develop a capacity to really think and look at themselves and have maps to understand who they are or where they come from or to cultivate those. That's part of the process downstream. If I was to work with someone, um, I'm not someone who's a big fan of just prescribing. Right. You know, I like to prescribe in the context of really. Um, the person understanding themselves, me being helpful in trying to play a role in having them understand themselves, and then also how can I and the relationship play a role in helping them in some fashion. And medications then can sometimes be used as symptom relief to facilitate that process of discovery and understanding. 
Because um, sometimes if someone is tremendously symptomatic, I think it's very hard to even have the space or the bandwidth sure. to sit and think and reflect and and do that deeper work. Um, but then it gets really exciting and interesting when you have um, someone who has then done that exploration. Sometimes that's happened even before they met me. Um, and also has a sense of me understanding them and has a sense of who I am and safety within the relationship. And... Um, and then you enter into a relationship with perhaps ketamine where that's used as an assistant to go even deeper with the internal process and work. That, I would say, is a really interesting process which unfolds. Um, I wouldn't say there's really a set number of sessions I have to have. It really so much depends on the dance between all of these different mm -hmm. forces. Sometimes I'll meet someone who comes in right away and I'm so excited to try ketamine. And I feel like um, it may not be the right medicine for yeah. you for a variety of reasons. Hey, Doc, I've read about it. Listen to you on the podcast. You're doing ketamine. Sign me up. And actually, there are many ways where one can get ketamine nowadays safely. Um, but it's not really what I think is the most advisable way to use it. So I'm quite selective about, and some of that has to do with the way in which I work, which is also not for everyone. I have a couple questions. Within depression, are there various uh, sorts or forms of depression that you find that ketamine works specifically well for? Or is it, and I, I understand everyone's unique and case-by-case -case basis, but are you seeing that there's certain uh, conditions that are driven by certain factors where it's a little bit more effective? You're seeing like therapy works for those people or no pattern or... Well, it, it has been shown to be very effective for what we call treatment-resistant depression, you know, which I don't know if that's really just a category of people who haven't responded to difficult cases, I guess is how we would think of that. Um, and some of it is just it's a different mechanism of action. But to be honest with you, I don't really, I mean, I'm, it's very easy to categorize people depression and use a DSM kind of formulation just looking at a checklist of symptoms of depression right. and look for certain um, themes or aspects or variations diurnal variation is there a lot of agitation in the picture how much obsessiveness there is and truthfully that's not generally how I, I mean it's easy to do that and I can do that incidentally but generally speaking I think it's much more interesting to look at depression in the context of a person and I do feel like there are people who I feel who are particularly suitable for depression. It doesn't mean to say other people aren't. But I think that it's particularly helpful for some of these difficult cases because a lot of those difficult cases tend to involve obsessive ruminations, which can be very difficult to treat because people get locked into these kind of restless states of mind where they're kind of um, very rigid in their thinking and and some of that is just character types and OCD, for example. I was going to ask you, like, what's an example of an obsessive rumination? What's an example? Well, you yeah. can see, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder um, is very difficult to treat pharmacologically. And ketamine is no different in that it's not a magic bullet. But I think some of these very agitated, depressed situations and sometimes layered depressions where you see, you know, in the old days we'd call them double depression where you have it seems like biological depression and family histories, but mm -hmm. then character types, which are very um, punitive and masochistic, and you have all these layering components sure. of people who tend... That's quite difficult to treat because you're asking a... You know, nowadays, 
generally speaking, asking a medication to fix a much bigger problem sure. as opposed to looking at the big picture and what are the contributing factors here and what are the externals as well as the internals, like the character structure and and um, how how is depression working for a person? Is it something that befell them or is this in the context of it being a lifelong aspect of who they are and right. there being a much broader um, narrative that informs the whole picture. And so I think ketamine can be really helpful to open it all out and really allow a different field to not only see, explore, investigate, but also to release from some of these positions and experience the self or have an awareness of self beyond some of these structures we live in. And also to some of those things and most of those things have provided provided some kind of um, benefit for the person. I mean, we are all like sculptures, I feel. So mm-hmm. there's a reason why we wound up being created in the mold we are. And so it's quite an extraordinarily different process than psychoanalytic psychotherapy even to, to really see that unfold and to play a role to assist, facilitate, and also provide certain um, capacities that perhaps haven't been um, adequately developed so the person can then start assuming them themselves. It's quite unique. So how would people who come out of the treatment, how would they describe the therapy to a friend? Like, I just did this amazing therapy and it felt like X or Y. I would say the, the thing I hear all the time, I don't know that they focus on the therapy as much as what's more dominant after the first experience would be the experience itself. So I think most people come out of it and say, that was completely mind-blowing. <laughs> or I'm at loss for words to describe what happened. Or that was the most amazing experience of my life. Those are kind of things that you hear all the time. And I can understand why. It's, it's kind of um, an experience that's really hard to explain. This is probably true of any psychedelic experience, particularly one in a very safe environment. Mm-hmm. It's really um, an eye-opener. It really is an experience which is very unlike something else that one has an ability to really map it onto. You know, in some ways I could say it's a little bit like having um, a lucid dream or for a psychoanalyst it's extraordinary because it's like entering into a dream world with your patient except for you're in their dream world and they're awake and you're with them. And even that sounds very surreal and mind-blowing as an idea. How long does it typically last? The experience itself, um, usually I put aside three hours for the session. You're not in the session the whole time in that experience. There's a a lot of time to get comfortable, talk, catch up. But the sessions are usually about an hour and a half when you're deep in it. And that's an arc of an experience going into it, a very um, deep experience for about 20 minutes and then coming out of it. So there's different ways in which it's layered and unfolds and then the recovery period when you're sitting with each other and coming back into yourself and the defenses are down which is actually probably where most of the psychotherapy proper Mm -hmm. happens where you're reviewing the experience and sharing the experience and I'm sharing what I saw when the person's in the experience unless it's helpful I try and just really not interfere with the process. So on the spectrum of psychedelics with therapy, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to take a guess and say the most intense is LSD and then psilocybin. And then is it ketamine? Like, where does it sit in the ladder in terms of time, intensity? Um, 
potential risks, like on the on the ladder, if you will? It's really hard to. I can tell you my own personal experience of them and my own personal views on them. Sure. Whether or not that's um, standard, I think it's hard to know because so much depends on dose, for example. Uh, right, and right. And so course. it's really hard to compare that. And um, also, people just have different reactions. Some people just don't do well with one versus another. And there's also people's tastes, you know, so there's so many sure. different qualities that make it quite difficult to. Um, explain. I actually really think ketamine is one of the safest ones. It's very short-acting, yes. and so it's very titratable. You know, in that sense, it doesn't have the serotonin depletion at the end of it, so you don't have a recovery. And I, th- but I do think the length of time it acts is very important because some people who've had difficult LSD experiences, some of it boils down to it's very long-acting, and that yeah. can be quite disturbing and distressing. Even if you have a good experience, actually, because at a certain point, people feel like, is this ever going to end? Exactly. I, I've experimented with all sorts of stupid things when I was young and not under medical supervision. And I think some people would say what they call a, a quote unquote bad trip is at one point you're over it. You're like, yes. I'm done. Is this going to go on forever? And then the bad trip happened, you know, and that's people call a bad trip. So I think that from that point of view, which for lots of people, that's a big piece of it. Sure. Um, you know, even some of the other medicines like psilocybin last for a few hours. The idea that, well, if you don't like it, it could be over in 40 minutes is quite reassuring. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can add a second dose to enhance it to an hour and a half. But, you know, 40 minutes is not a tremendously lengthy period of time, and it's not 40 minutes full on either. So that's one aspect of safety. But I would say, you know, if you go to high dose intramuscular, you can have really profoundly deep experiences in some ways analogous to um, really being in different realms of consciousness like ayahuasca. So it's sure. hardly so much depends on the how you're choreographing an experience. But it's incredibly safe, even though in the high doses it can be super weird. And it is intensely psychedelic, too, I would say. That was the thing that I found really shocking about it is um, when I first experienced ketamine, I was surprised that this is the one that's FDA approved and legal because it seems intensely psychedelic and super strange. Um, But that also is really dependent on the dose. It doesn't have to be. um, It can be very subtle and just be an anxiolytic in tiny doses. So what's nice about it is there's really a way in which, this is probably true of all of the psychedelics actually, you can really, um, but the the half-life really helps with really being able to titrated so um, so closely to the individual. It comes on within three minutes or with the lozenges, maybe that's increased to 10 minutes or five to 10 minutes and it wears off quickly. So you can really build an experience and even if you can't take it away, you know, you can be really close at hand to monitor it and fine tune it. And that I think is such an advantage of safety and not having a bad trip and not having yeah, a difficult experience. To, to, to me, the safety element is huge because you know there are risks with some of the more intense treatments. When if you know maybe you're not as familiar as you should be with your genes, or you don't have the best medical practitioner at your side, you can do some damage. And I always say like if you. You know, if you roll the dice with your mental health and goes the other way, it's hard to reclaim. And that can be very challenging in, for people. I completely agree with you. I think psychedelics are so exciting. But I do think just as they offer an opportunity for really 
deep healing, you know, one of my concerns is that there's also a real possibility of deep trauma happening in that context with someone who is really not knowledgeable. Oftentimes I've heard stories which are really not from malice, it's really from lack of experience or um, just, um, you know, just really not knowing how to handle a situation or not even recognizing a situation and inadvertently um, activating abandonment issues, things like that. Just, yeah, just by knowing your genetic ma- makeup and what runs in your family and genes, things to stay away from. Or oh, you mean in terms of the actual, how it's going to interact with you? Yeah, that's a big thing too. I like think if certain that's illnesses can run in your yeah. And I think what's nice is about some of these medicines, and I think, you know, the first time I work with someone with ketamine, I always think of the first experience as a test dose. Right. Because even if you have a sense of the person's depression and their history and what's worked and what hasn't, it's, you know, I actually think of this as all medicines, actually, but you never know until you try it. It's always an experiment. So even if on paper someone is really well-suited for ketamine, whether or not they're going to agree with them, you don't really know. So to really think of it as a take a small dose and see how it sits with you, right. what the experience is. I think it's very important, but I think that's actually good practice in prescribing any medicine, really, because yes. it is much more of an art than a science. Yes. So with regards to depression... What do you think is going on right now as a society? It, it, it seems like this is a lot of people are just not like serious depression. What do you think is driving that? Well, you know, I think it's obviously a huge, huge problem and a growing problem. But if you look at what's happening to our world, I don't think it's restricted to depression. I think that it's really um, unfortunate what we're doing more globally to our world is not happy, our environment is not happy. You know, what's happening all over the world globally, you know, is almost in sync with the numbers of depression. And so I think that this is just one symptom of a broader problem. Just as I was talking about depression being a symptom when someone comes to see me as the bigger ecology of a person, Mm -hmm. I think the depression is a symptom of a bigger problem globally that is happening. And I I similarly feel like, you know, um, if you look at the context with depression and can try and really open it up and offer an opportunity for deeper healing, which I think has to do with homeostasis, regulation, dysregulation, we're getting more and more disconnected from ourselves and, and also disconnected from communities. And I think that that is really rippling out in all sorts of unfortunate expressions. How much do you think, te- I have a theory that social media is not exactly helping us there? Um, you know, I think it's really complicated. I mean, probably not, but I think that that's just one aspect of the whole, right? Everyone is so, it's just an expression of more and more disconnectedness and how um, moving in the other direction. I mean, people are moving more towards that and are more disconnected. So that gets exp- internally as well mm-hmm. as externally. More and more, I feel like um, what we're doing in our lives and what we're doing in the world are just expressions or mirroring what's happening in the internal mechanisms of ourselves. So to blame it on social media seems a little bit upside down, really, to me, as opposed to how can we have someone be more connected internally to themselves and how would that then get expressed in their life? I mean, that's typically what I see, which is so moving in sessions, is as people find deeper connections with themselves, which corresponds to deeper connections because they're sort of one and the same in the relationship consulting room with me, 
that blossoms out into their everyday life. And they look for and find different ways of connecting with neighbors and friends. And, you know, to me, it becomes quite extraordinary as a as a teacher, really, of how much of these problems are really symptoms or expressions of where a person is, as opposed to, and it's very hard to fix these things a little sure. bit, you know, externally, when they're expressions of internal disconnects that we all share and hold. So what's your advice for someone listening who's saying, okay, I would like some deeper connection. Tell me what to do. What, what practices have you found to work for people there to help them connect better to themselves? Um, well, I'm a big fan of meditation. You know, I think that a lot of people feel like ketamine is the answer, and I feel like ketamine is a really important tool, but it's not the only one. I do feel like, you know, breathing practices, meditation, mm-hmm. being in nature, sitting with oneself can be quite difficult to even learn how to sit with oneself, even meditation. People feel like there's all sorts of important instruction that needs to happen, but actually just you know, taking time to sit and be with oneself or notice how difficult it is um, in this and how easy and how tempting it is to run off and to notice the mind running off with the laundry list of things to do and things to post. And even just to become aware of, of how challenging it is to find a depthful connection with, or how depthful can one connect with oneself. I think that's the start of a process. Agreed. So meditating alone in nature, huge. Huge. <laughs> so it's funny you mentioned that because in the extreme of that, we had a, a guest on, uh, Dr. Molly Malouf, uh, who's out of San Francisco, and we were talking about psychedelics to some degree and like what's going on in the valley. And she, she made a, an interesting point. She said, look, for some people, going to a Vipassana treat c- could, could cause someone like a breakdown. And that, in some cases, she seems is potentially more dangerous to someone's mental health, depending on their state, than doing one of these therapies. And I thought it was like a very interesting point, like this idea of sitting alone with your thoughts quietly for a week or two weeks is tough. Very tough. And I see that a lot with, um, you know, even with meditation, I, I, I really am a big advocate for meditation practice and even when I say nature I don't think it has to I live in New York City (laughs) so it doesn't have to be you know going to great efforts and expense I think even appreciating the trees on the sidewalk outside or even paying attention normally we're so distracted and busy we don't notice the things in front of us or even movement can be a meditation walking and mindfulness but it is true a lot of people I work with um, and see and this is everyday people in New York City, it's very difficult to sit with oneself and one's thought. And what I have found these medicines really allow is really a cultivation of that in a very, very deep way. And oftentimes there's a stacking effect is between meditation and psychedelics. And so I oftentimes hear people talk about how they can meditate now after they've done some ketamine work or their meditation has been enhanced. Mm-hmm. These capacities, some of these pathways get opened up and the memory of them or the muscle memory and the um, capacities get established and enhanced. But I think the goal is not to just um, lean only on a medicine, but how to develop those abilities internally, but use this as a tool right. to really go deeper within oneself and find and discover different practices which basically um, 
don't have to be work, but just everyday experiences that one can really just be attentive to, which are very nourishing. Mm-hmm. And get back to the dis- away from the disconnections that have somehow been helpful for the person, but can be let go of. And can you talk a little bit about some of the other treatments, your MAPS training therapist, and just explain to people what MAPS is and some of the other therapy uh, you're interested in, and w- with regards to psychedelic assisted therapy. MAPS is a wonderful organization. It's called, it's an acronym for Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. It's quite, quite a mouthful. And they're doing extraordinary work in the world. The, um, the project I'm involved with is a phase three study for MDMA to get it FDA approved for, um, for MDMA assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. And it's the most extraordinary study. Um, where we work with very severe PTSD, um, several sessions to really process the trauma with the individual. And it's because it's FDA and they have such stringent standards, we are talking about very, very symptomatic, very sick individuals who really have their life robbed from them, very high suicide rates. And to actually see these individuals, many of whom are veterans or trauma survivors, to have them really reclaim their life is just the most moving work. And we're very excited that it's really looking promising that MDMA will be FDA approved in a few years, hopefully, and will allow for just much more treatment availability. So you say F- you mentioned FDA approved, and my head went to other things that are FDA approved yes. and SSRIs. Mm-hmm. What role do SSRIs play? And just explain what they are for the audience and how you see the the bigger picture, if you will, of potential FDA-approved treatments in the future. SSRIs are antidepressants that work on um, the neurotransmitter serotonin. Um, Prozac um, is the first one that came out, and everyone typically knows about that, or Zoloft, or Paxil. And these have become the mainstream antidepressants available in psychiatry. Um, and they're very safe. And they're, you know, they're very widely prescribed, and they're quite well tolerated. Although there is a cost, they do have side effects such as, you know, diminished access to feelings and sexual side effects, which, which actually are much better than suicidal feelings or sure. serious depression. They so save lives. They save lives. Yeah. So I do think there is a place for antidepressants. They do work for a lot of people, and they're, you know. They're what we have, and they can be quite effective and have helped so many people. Um, so I think there's something very important about them. I do think that they're not perfect. They're not the magic bullet. I think there are serious costs to them. It's very hard to come off them. I think they've been prescribed maybe and tend to be prescribed too much right. um, at the drop of a hat. A lot of kids are taking them. And so, you know, but it depends on the situation. So I think there is something to be said for them. I do think that, um, you know, psychedelics offer a whole different approach to healing, even just as a flat-out antidepressant. A lot of the psychedelics have been shown to be incredibly effective with a really different side effect profile and also not requiring daily treatment. So that's really important as a radical alternative um, but I have found with ketamine, you know, assisted psychotherapy, as well as just ketamine therapy, 
a lot of people have been able to come off their antidepressants and have a wider range of ex emotional experience, which, which I think gets into some of the self-regulation capacities that can be established and developed, which, um, you know, some of it is how does one regulate one's feeling? In some mm. ways, we all learn to regulate our affects and emotional state from our early caregivers. We come into this world very ill-equipped to manage emotions. That's done by our caregivers, and then hopefully over time we establish our own. But I think we all have deficits from this. This goes back to this problem. You know, it really does take a village. Um, to, and we don't have that. We don't have the mother and the other mother and the grandmother and the fathers and the uncles all coming sure. around to help. And so very much, you know, um, and then all our caregivers have so many demands on them to go back to the workforce and, you know, keep up with the Joneses, all of that. So it's, it's just a self-perpetuating system. This gets into the community issues. And so I think that there is you know, really a lot of deficits we all carry for our own capacities to self-regulate and right. homeostasis. And I think that's what's exciting to me about psychedelics offering really a different way in to do some of that deeper repair work individually and in community. And I think that could be really important towards really shifting how we think of mental health, how we think of well-being, how we manage depression and and really shift some of what's happening in the world. So you mentioned kids and SSRIs. Do you think this is something new, or do you think it's they're just being overprescribed, or do you think this was something that's always been there, but we weren't paying attention to it? Well, I think we have more safety data, and there is this kind of, um, you know, and kids are, I think kids are getting more depressed just like everyone else. You're seeing all the rates going up of depression. The suicide rate in children is just staggering and just horrific. And so, you know, there really is just, I think, this whole pattern we're seeing of increased numbers of depression. Children are not immune. And I think pressures on children are very different and growing too. And so, um, you know, I think this trend is increasing and they need to treat children and the standard of care for adults does tend to be SSRIs and short-term psychotherapy or behavioral therapy. And so that's what's employed. And then the studies show improvement. It gets to be a self, self sure. circular kind of problem. And we also come up with these diagnoses. Right. And then we treat them. And so, um, you know, I'm surprised. I have two children who are young, two guys, uh, two boys. And how old? 13 and 17. Okay. And I'm just amazed at how many kids are taking medications and of course it's not about the medications it's unfortunate so many kids are so unhappy and are struggling yeah it's something i think about a lot we have uh two girls three years old and seven months huh? and we just think about the world they're growing up and i think it's tough to be a kid and you know do you have any advice for any parents out there who are <laughs> trying to do the right thing I think it's really challenging yeah. to be a parent and also I think hopeful too. Yeah. I mean I do actually feel um I think I think there's a really exciting um awareness of people being really not happy with what's happening particularly the younger generation and I think that makes me very hopeful because I think some of the things that we have done um to the world and the things we've established I think there's a growing dissatisfaction this isn't working. We don't want this for ourselves. We don't want this for our children. And I think it's it's exciting that there's a real 
um, body of people feeling we want to make some real shifts in the culture we've created. And so I think that's encouraging. So what advice do you have? Look, you hit the nail on the head. Like there's just so much. <laughs> the news out there is d- depressing. Some days it's out. It, it, it's infuriating. It's incendiary. And some people will just either tune it out or get angry or uh, say, I can't do anything. Like what, what advice do you have for people who are, you know, struggling to stay positive positive? Uh, struggling to connect in a world that can seem unkind, overwhelming, and is we're on the, the road to doom and gloom? Well, you know, I, I really like to think of it as we're all in this together, and we're all part of that collective, and you can do your own piece by doing your own part. You know, I feel like um, sometimes I notice I get very invested in trying to help everybody else, and um, as opposed to how much of that is an excuse towards looking at myself and helping myself and doing my own inner work and process. And of course, it's a back and forth between the two. But I think we can all play a role in changing community by going deeper into ourselves, doing our own work, because I think from that, the fruits wind up actually blossoming out into helping the community. And if we all are doing that, I think that's going to actually create a much bigger ripple effect Mm -hmm. um, closer to home but I think it's a collective experience as opposed to blaming, pointing fingers, um, and actually even looking at what's triggering us in those p- individuals, how much of that corresponds to shadow in ourselves, and where can we go internally to do our work of clearing out those places um, and using some of what's happening as a teacher towards that. I mean, I think there is this huge shadow we all carry with ourselves and collectively that really is not being addressed which is why it's all over the place (laughs) in the media in the news in the world and so that's one way I've been really thinking very aware of thinking about this because I deal with this all the time and it is scary but it's also something we together have created so any advice for someone listening who you know is okay but how, there's a loved one who's who's struggling and it, it's often hard to when people are struggling some people are very open about it and they want help and others are resistant and that's tough when someone around you is, is suffering yes um, any advice what to do in a situation like that well I think that um I think, you know, we're talking a lot about connection. And I think finding ways to just, it can be simple acts of kindness can make such a difference to not feel alone, to be the one to talk with another person. Even if you feel the person doesn't want to talk, is is not welcoming the talk, even to sit with another person can be so healing. Just to be in community, when I talk about being in nature, you know, nature doesn't have to be a park could be just even being aware of a tree but it could be actually another person we're nature and just being in contact with another person or being kind can have a huge impact um, and can actually perhaps lead the way to talking more about getting treatment or getting help or not being alone or sharing or connecting because it gets back to that whole disconnection piece well there was a great we had uh the one of the founders jc the founder of november um and passion of his is mental health specifically for men and and he this great antidote where he said i'm generalizing but you know 
women are better communicators than most men and men are terrible about telling other men that they're not feeling well and mm -hmm. men specifically in their 40s uh he was saying who had gone through like potentially a divorce weren't doing well by then they're married they have kids they've sort of the men aren't keeping their friends along mm -hmm. they tend to go with like their wife's friends that they, they lost some of those important connections and that men in their 40s were some of them were struggling hugely with their mental health after a divorce and wouldn't talk about it period and um some of the numbers he had with regards to suicide were astounding and like the thing with men like a, a man talking to another man traditionally would not say i'm hurting yes <laughs> and his whole campaign was around just like checking in on your mates so like hey let's go to a game we don't even have to talk but like let's go to a game together and hang out like how are you doing that's it. like very little conversation but just showing up and traditionally men of my age are just terrible at that i think that's so true it's funny it reminds me of something my son who's 13 who's become a big beatles fan um, it might it's be epigenetics. Great taste, I love it. I know, right? And he was telling me, he was showing me a clip of Paul McCartney, a recent one, because, you know, talking about his new album, uh, song with Kanye. And he was talking about how, you know, men don't talk about feelings, exactly yes. what you yes. were saying, and how that's why he likes writing songs, because you can talk about how you love your friend in a song. And I thought it was just, it really was thought-provoking and interesting how exactly exposing what you're talking about, about how just listening to a piece for music together is acceptable, mm -hmm. whereas to actually put into word the feelings is not. And there's something quite um, poignant about that and sad. But I think you're bringing up such an important idea of how do we develop new ways of connecting and engaging. And a lot of it doesn't have to be verbal necessarily, mm -hmm. just being with each other in connection or, um, you know, he said, Paul, McCartney said um, you know that's partly why going to the pub getting drunk because then you can blubber all each other and tell them how you love each other <laughs> yes not yes. that that's a good solution sure but there might be you know how do we cultivate different ways of connecting in society where to actually be with each other and to be in community or with each other and sharing and feeling each other it gets to be um, gets to be established and cultivated because I think it's a very beautiful experience. I do think men connecting can be so powerful and so necessary. Mm -hmm. It really is a missing piece, I think, in society. So community seems to be a big theme for well-being, which I love, because if you, we, we've had Dan Buettner on here uh, who create, you know, discovered or written extensively about blue zones and he talks about emotional well-being and the power of community, multi-generational living, neighbors walking over to neighbors, having dinner. Um, what I think is so interesting too is, you know, they enjoy wine. Like it's a very communal atmosphere, and there, where there, there's very strong social connection on a multi-generational level. Yes, like they're not going to CrossFit. They're not intermittent fat. They're not doing all these things, which, you know, are, have benefits and so forth. But at its core, there are people who are uh, moving all day and connecting with people all day. And they have meaningful relationships. And you just can't discount that. It's so important. And really something that needs to be done more of because we've become so isolated 
and so separated from everything. So if you could uh, look into the future, what do you think we're going to be talking about a year from now with regards to all these exciting new treatments out there? What's any exciting new science studies? What? Well, the, there's a lot of new science and a lot of studies coming up and a lot of the major medical and psychiatric institutions are developing centers to focus on research and development of psychedelics. I think it's a huge, exciting movement in mental health. And I'm really enthusiastic and excited about that. Personally, I'm excited in not only the neurotransmitter studies and the brain imaging studies and the um, approval of these studies and the symptom relief, which is much more the medical model, which is so important and so necessary and so exciting. But I'm more interested in um, and you probably get a sense of that from chatting with me, I'm interested in the experience, the psychological experience, character, mind, um, mind-body. How can we really use these medicines and think about how do we change some of the um, theoretical platforms we're using in psych- psychiatry and in psychotherapy to really um, bring in some of these ideas to go further with connection, deeper healing, which I think will then have deeper influence in a person's life and make a shift really towards community health, ecological health, the planet. So that's what I'm more interested in, is trying to think about some of those um, some of those contributions. I think the other thing that's exciting is there are a lot of psychedelic centers and clinics being planned and thought about, which I think is both exciting and also a challenging moment because it really is important that these things be done well. Yes, got to so, get it right. <laughs> got to get it right. So I'm excited. I'm also a little bit nervous about what that's going to hold, but the potential is very exciting. The idea of trying to do something radical which could really be available to more people and really lay down a whole uh, paradigm shift in healing and consciousness and community. And, you know, when you talk about community, I think but psychedelics do rather well, um, probably more profoundly than anything else it really and a lot of the studies in the medical um, institutions really look at ego dissolution as a variable you know when someone really has an experience beyond ego beyond self um, it can be quite profound it can be mystical it can be associated with reduction of symptoms all of that but it it's really profound to really um, experience being part of the whole you know, in a very profound way, and to really understand the capacity for humans to exist in discrete ways as well as collective ways, I think, and the potential healing that Mm -hmm. comes from that is a very important thread that I think, in a very direct way, psychedelics opens up a potential for, which I think really is a correction to what's happening in our society and culture, where we're getting more and more discrete, separate, disconnected, and it's not working. Well, to me, the most interesting thing about this is is the word healing. And I am most interested in this idea of, it seems like everything I'm hearing, reading, seeing with these treatments is there, there's this process, there's, there's a healing that takes place. There's work involved, but there's a healing versus a system today where it could potentially be medication and therapy for life, where there, there's no healing, if you will. It's a lifelong band-aid? 
I'm totally with you. I have to say I've always been someone who's gone for the deeper healing as opposed to the quick fix. That's why yeah. as a psychiatrist, I'm much more towards the impractical psychoanalysis method of let's go as deep as we can. You have to do can. the work with anything. In life. Like you got to do the work. But so with psychedelics, I guess my perspective is instead of how do we use it as an antidepressant for the quick fix, symptom release, how do we go, what is the potential these medicines offer for the deeper healing? And I have to say, in that inquiry, I've been really stunned, my mind has been blown, from seeing what opens up and the field it creates and how it keeps on going, the depth of healing that can occur. And regulation systems, homeostasis, I would have never believed this was possible. So that's personally what's very exciting about the future with these medicines and trying to galvanize interest to get people interested in studying and looking at these pieces um, because I think the potential for really making a bigger difference is much, much more exciting than just the, the model which hasn't worked even if applied to psychedelics of the quick fear symptom release. Um, how do we just get it out there quickly? Agreed. It's fascinating. Kita. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you.